Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet young adult author Lisa Williams Klein. Lisa will be reading essays, short stories, and excerpts from her latest novel, One Week of You. What's the trick to writing about teen lives? Keep your brain in high school mode. In One Week of You, Lisa does just that in her humorous take on young love. Or is it just a crush? There's more than one mystery that needs to be solved in this book. We start the show with Lisa reading Happy Points, a story about the confluence of depression and happiness. Happy Points My husband Jeff has been collecting happy points. They give them out at our grocery store. Considering all the thought that has gone into understanding what makes modern adults happy, it's comforting to know that to achieve happiness, all you really have to do is go to your grocery store and spend a little money. In this case, you receive one happy point for every $10 you spend. The happy points come in the form of stickers that can be applied to a page similar to green stamps. Jeff takes great joy in affixing these these stickers. He volunteers to go to the store for random items, items we don't even need yet, and I watch him as he comes in brandishing tiny metallic squares. He licks them and neatly adds them to the line of stickers we've accumulated. Then he pleasurably contemplates the prizes we will win once these happy points are redeemed. Once, after shopping, curious to see if I could capture a bit of his pleasure, I affixed the stickers myself. Jeff was visibly disappointed when he found out I had done it. I have actually been in therapy for depression for the past year, and it's frustrating to learn that achieving happiness, which for me has become so elusive, is a simple matter for my husband of buying a few dollars worth of groceries and coming closer to the goal. What is the goal, you may ask? Kitchenware, small kitchen appliances. When we perused the page showing the prizes, I pointed out to Jeff that there was nothing there we needed. He was undaunted. We'll get things for the girls, he said. After several phone consultations with our grown daughters, we settled on the hand blender and the waffle maker. When the promotion was over, Jeff had proudly collected the maximum happy points. In a highly anticipated trip to the store, he took the sheet with our collected stickers to redeem for the prizes. 
Sorry, the clerk said when Jeff arrived. We're out of the hand blenders and waffle makers. All we have are the 36-cup coffee makers. When will you get more, Jeff asked. Tomorrow morning early, she replied. The next morning, Jeff was at the store at the crack of dawn. Not early enough, however. All of the hand blenders and waffle makers were again gone. Or maybe they had never actually come in. When will the next delivery be? Tuesday morning. Can I get my name on a waiting list? No, first come, first served. So, still feeling happy, I asked Jeff after his second home, trip home empty-handed. They will not defeat me, said Jeff. I will wear them down with my patience. I don't care if I have to go back ten times. After his third trip, the store had finally begun a waiting list that was seven or eight pages long when they added my husband's name to the end. Jeff, just to be on the safe side, visited several other branches of the store and added his name to their lists, too. They said we weren't allowed to put our names on more than one list, he confided when he got home, red-cheeked and a little winded with excitement, but desperate times call for desperate measures. After almost a month had gone by, I went to the store and checked with the manager. Do you know when you'll be getting the waffle maker and the hand blender, I asked. They said it would be next week, but I don't believe them, said the clerk. We'll never do a promotion with that company again. That's okay, said Jeff when I told him. Having to wait longer for our prizes will just increase our pleasure when we finally get them. The key is that others will give up. They'll forget. We can't, not when we come this far. Finally, finally, nearly two months after the promotion ended, we received the long-awaited call from the store manager informing us that our waffle maker and hand blender had arrived. My husband raced to the store, obtained our prizes, and delivered them to our daughters. Our daughters took them with that casual gratitude that children have, never knowing that the price paid for these little appliances was literally dozens of trips to the store. Like many of life's goals, the process of getting them eclipsed their value many times over. And are you happy, I asked Jeff? Have the happy points made you happy? This essential question, the one I have been pondering about my existence for the past year, kept coming back to me. Very, he said. It makes me happy to get free stuff. But Jeff knew what I meant. He put his arm around me and squeezed my shoulder. You'll get it back, he said with confidence. You just have to be patient. He experienced a depression several years ago after his father's death. He was hollow-eyed and listless for months, and I, having never experienced anything like it, became impatient with him. He is not that way with me. His deep and loving empathy is sometimes all that gets me through. He understands that today, for me, happiness is a word whose very definition begins a soul-searching that involves therapy and medication and whose answer seems complex and unreachable. Now, for him, happiness is as simple as affixing a shiny sticker to a sheet and turning it in for out-of-stock kitchen appliances that we don't really need. There's something magical about his ability to do that. And the fact that he's able to feel happy about happy points gives me hope that one day I will too. Lisa Williams Klein was such a daydreamer as a kid that she once stopped to pet a dog while running from third base to home. Fortunately, she ended up as a writer where daydreaming pays off. She's the author of nine novels for young people, including the latest novel published by Blue Crow Publishing, One Week of You. Lisa also had a number of essays and short stories published, including a collection of short stories for adults entitled Take Me, Main Street Rag, and won a Press 53 short story contest. She teaches writing workshops about young people to both adults and teens. A graduate of Duke University, she has a master's in radio, television, and film from UNC Chapel Hill and an MFA from Queens University. She served as president of the Charlotte Writers Club and on the board of the North Carolina Writers Network. 
She lives in Davidson, North Carolina with her veterinarian husband, Jeff, and numerous spoiled pets. Lisa, welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot, Landis. It's great to be here. I really, uh, really am um, excited and honored to be um, included. Well, and, you know, we, we ought to probably disclose that your husband, Jeff, is sitting in the audience here, too, as we go through this, right? So yeah, absolutely. He looks pretty happy still yeah. <laughs> you know, after the happy points from the initial read there. Yeah, he, uh, he likes it when I write things that make fun of him. Okay, good. good. Well, then, then that fit it perfectly, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, Lisa, you've written nine novels, uh, one nonfiction book. Um, you wrote a series. You've written freestanding books. You're a YA novelist. What does it mean to be a young adult novelist? Um, gee, that's a good question. Uh, when I wrote my first novel, it was about my grandmother, and it was based on her letters and her photographs, and I started the story when she was 12 years old. And I followed her life uh, based on the letters and photographs from the time she was 12 to the time she was about 18. and. So I think that when I first, when I wrote my first book, my book was seen as a YA book because my main character was in that age group. And so then after I had published one YA book, I, my publishers were looking for more books for that age group from me. And I had a lot of ideas. Uh, my, um, my memory of the emotions of being in high school and being in junior high I, is very vivid. And I, I remember the way it feels emotionally uh, well, to that, be I, that age. I was going to ask you about that. And it, it sort of falls in the lines of the question is, what's the trick to writing about kids in middle school and high school when you're our age? <laughs> I mean, you gotta, you're not 17 anymore. I'm sorry. Right, you know, yeah. Um, how do you make your brain work that way? Do you... Well, I joke with people. I say that I'm, I'm emotionally stuck at age 13, and sometimes I, you know, I just say that jokingly. But I do have just a very vivid memory of, of what it feels like. And I think my personality is kind of a um, kind of oversensitive, unsure personality anyway. And so that sometimes fits with the unsure way that sometimes that people can feel when they're in middle school and high school. So I say that, but also you're writing some contemporary young adult uh, novels and things have changed from the time that you were in, were in middle school and high school, right? So, right. So, Absolutely. so how do you Very keep, much. now you've Very raised, much. you've raised two children. Right. You saw them go through the Mean Girl experience, right? You know, yes, yes, I did. Yes, I <laughs> and did. All, and I all did steal the from their lives. Yeah. I did I have to I have to say that I did steal for their lives from their lives and even for my for my last book, I the things that happened in the book actually happened to my daughters. So and, and do they know that you've been stealing from their lives? When they're right? they're aware of it and I guess they just accept it as something that uh, that happens when um, when you have a mom who's a writer. As long as you don't use their names, you're you're good. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty good. Uh, we're going to talk about one week of you before the show's out, and you're going to read some sections of that, but a little bit more, and then we're going to talk about happy places before we do that too. How is it that uh, you avoid, as as an author of young adult fiction, slipping out of that young voice and having your mature self take over accidentally? Does that happen? You have to go back and you know guard against that sometimes when you're writing. Um, I, I guess I'm not very mature. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, that's, 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 that your voice is, is the voice. I, yeah. I, I think that, well, I think that I do, I can get into that voice and, um, and, and I feel lucky that I, I feel like I can stay in it pretty mm -hmm. well. And, and part of it is because I, um, I, I am a little unsure about about being an adult anyway i guess mm. but you have to keep up with all the technology too are you on snapchat are you doing uh i'm, I'm on instagram yeah, and uh, and i'm i'm on twitter and and yeah. facebook yeah so. but facebook is not for now facebook people. is for uh, yeah facebook it's for old people yeah right? that's yeah. right yeah but, that's right uh, so you have to learn you have to stay up with the technology yeah I, my daughter my daughter kelsey has helped me with instagram she gave me some t some tutoring on instagram so they also say that to be a better well some people say this to be a better writer you need to read a lot you need to read books that are in your genre you need to read things that spark you know what what does a young adult author read to get the feel of such life? People magazine, Instagram. Uh, well, Ma there are Mad there magazine. are so many wonderful young adult <laughs> authors that yeah. you can that you can read a lot of young adult um, books and uh, and read them. I I love John Green and I I love to read John Green and I I just I think that his um his his books just really capture the feeling of being a teen so well. I guess where I was going on the question too. Oh, that's okay. that's a good answer. I like that, but. What about what the kids are reading, like the magazines or the shows they're watching or whatever? Are you trying to in immerse yourself in some of that, too, to get a feel for what they're thinking? I, I, I have to admit that I don't. Ah, okay, well, that's your next <laughs> assignment then, right? I know. I have to admit that I don't. I, yeah. um, and I, they, it's, they kind of warn you against getting too much in when you write a book. Um, for young people, they warn you against getting too much into um, popular culture because the popular culture changes so much that mm -hmm. by the, between the time that you write the book and the time that it comes out, the songs will be different and a lot of things will be different. So it's, it's good to try to be as timeless as you can and, as, and not as attached to pop culture as just I have found, and I, mm -hmm. and a lot of times when when my editors edit my books, if I if I mention a song in it, sometimes they'll suggest that I take it out. All right. So. Well, let's talk about Happy Places. Uh, just, just a minute. You wrote this okay. uh, at a time when your husband was getting joy out of uh, free stuff, and you were right. going through a tough time, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. This was a, I guess about about ten years ago. I guess maybe mm -hmm. maybe eight to ten years ago, and um, and I had never. I had never been depressed a day in my life. I had never had any experiences with it at all. Mm. And um, did you did it, you in, in taking on depression in a published piece like this? Did you have any reservations? Was it hard to do? Were you thinking, oh, what are people going to think of me now if I talk about this publicly? I well, maybe a little bit, but mm -hmm. I think that it's good to be public about it because somebody who's experienced it might experiencing it might um, get some comfort out of hearing that other people have have been through it also right well yeah I applaud you for going there I, and I think that one of the things you did in the piece is not only address that issue head on but you kind of balance the two against each other the the happiness and the sadness to, to come out with a point you know at the end yeah. Uh, do you do that a lot in your writing uh, with with the teen? There's a lot of teen angst, and there's some happy moments and sad moments. Yes, that balancing yes. act must be something that helps keep people interested in the 
in the book, right? I, I really strive for that. That's my favorite kind of writing is the writing that combines poignancy with humor. And I, I, that's my ideal, um, the ideal writing that, that I would like to try to do, that I, I'd like to write a piece and have people laugh and cry in, in it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my goal. One of my one of my favorite adult writers is Ann Tyler, and I think she does that so beautifully. She has such wonderful, gentle humor in her in her work, but she also um, has has just such poignancy and emotion in her work, and um, I re- I admire that so much. Where do you get your ideas? You've you've written nine YA novels. Is there that much angst in the world <laughs> of, of, of teenage life? <laughs> you just keep coming up with something new. Um, well, let's see. The the first one was about my grandmother's childhood, and that real that was historical fiction. And I guess that really wasn't wasn't angst. It was it was more of an adventure. She wanted to go to high school, and there was no high school in her town. And it was it was really based on what really what really happened to her. Mm-hmm. I used her letters and photographs. So I guess there wasn't angst in that. The, my second book, Princesses of Atlantis, was did was based a lot on my own my own teen years mm-hmm. um and i was going to ask you if you do anything autobiographical in your writing do you i sometimes do i especially yeah. try to recapture the way i felt about things mm-hmm. and there are some scenes say in one week of you the the scene there's a scene at the end when um when lizzie the main character babysits and she invites the boy she likes over while she's babysitting and that is actually something that I did when I was a teenager and I still and I invited my boyfriend over and he was there for about 10 minutes because we realized that we were that we were not doing a good thing and we felt very guilty and he left almost immediately afterwards but I and so the the uh what really happened was much less than what actually happens in the um in the book true confessions here also yes. on charlotte readers podcast you heard, yes, it, you, heard right. it, you heard it first, you heard it first here the controversy continues right, well, that's, that's a good segue into the book here one week of you i'm holding the uh the novel now looking at it it's got a a, a nice cover on it with birds and flowers and i love the they're, cover they're all, i just really love blue. it uh to, you, you've been published um you know different ways over the years right i mean you've tried uh and you're now with uh a new publisher, right? Yes, Blue Crow Publishing. Okay. And uh, they're a small publisher out of Chapel Hill, and my experience with them has just been great. It's been wonderful. Good, and they helped um, you with the cover, I assume. Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the publishers, Lauren Falconberry, is a um, graphic artist also, and she did the cover. Great. Um, All right. Well, plug for Blue Crow here. Yes, absolutely. Right. Uh, so the, the book, let's talk just briefly about uh, the characters and the plot, and then I'm going to let you start off by reading a scene where uh, the some of the texting takes over. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so a little bit about the plot. You got Lizzie Winston. Uh, she has a crush on charismatic Andy Knox, okay. right? So well, his name is Masters. I changed oh, it. Ma- yes. ma- okay, what a master. Okay, okay. well, t- tell us about the plot a little bit here. Okay, well, um, it, it's really the, the story is kind of based on something that my older daughter and my younger b- daughter both experienced. And w- when my older daughter was in eighth grade, she had to carry a flower baby for her health class. And this flower baby was supposed to show us, show young people the responsibilities that might be involved if you had to carry a baby around with you all the time. And I, um, I hadn't ever heard of having a having curriculum like that, and I thought it had some 
I just found it very interesting, and I thought it also had some comic possibilities, especially if a student was forgetful. Um, and then another thing that really happened was that um, my younger daughter, one year when she was in high school, there were three bomb threats in one week and at her school. And it was a very chaotic week, and I admired the way the staff handled it, and I admired the stoic way the, the kids handled it. They really were very... Um, they were very calm and collected about it, and but and of course the parents were the most the most upset of anyone. So I wanted I wanted to write about those two things, and I, I saw it as a writing challenge because I wanted to um, combine what could essentially be a comic plot with a more serious plot, and so that's what that's where I I started to try to I took it kind of as a writing challenge. Can I combine these two ideas in one story? All right, Lisa, well, I'd like you to read, if you would, from the first chapter of One Week of You, beginning on Sunday. It's 10 o'clock at night, and I'm lying in bed texting Marissa. We have this game we play. She knows I want to be a doctor, so she started making up fake diseases that she's sure she has and texting me about them. I can't focus on homework disease, snarfing down potato chips disease, stuff like that. Now we both do it. I have AMSD, I type. What's that, she replies, playing the game. Andy Masters' smiling disease. Ha ha. Every time I think about him, I start smiling and can't stop. Only an hour after I got home Friday, Andy texted me. I am really good at singing basically anything, he wrote. I texted back, I bet, LOL. We've been texting back and forth all weekend ever since. I've been trying to think up witty answers to his funny texts or writing answers to him and saving them rewriting them, sending them to Marissa to see what she thinks, then being afraid I accidentally send them to the wrong person, realize I had too many, way too many LOLs, deleting them. You have to stop me, I text Marissa. I'm obsessed. So, she answers, what's wrong with that? I said I'd never be obsessed with a guy. Two summers ago, after seventh grade, my old best friend Kelly and I swore we would not be like other girls and make fools of ourselves over guys. We swore we'd stay focused on being doctors, and until now, there had not been any boys to make a fool of myself over. Well, stuff happens, Marissa texts. Marissa, my new best friend, whose boyfriend Cody seems crazy about her, clearly doesn't see a problem with making a fool of yourself over a boy. My brother Ryan says ninth grade boys are only interested in one thing. Does that include Andy? Then Marissa's next balloon pops up. Ready to be a 15-year-old mom? OMG, what? What is she talking about? Then I remember, April Fool's Day is next week. I know I'm obsessed with Andy, and I know next week is April Fool's, but come on. No, Lizzie, did you get your flower baby? I sit bolt upright. Oh, no, the week of the flower baby. It's not April Fool's. It's real. I can't believe I've forgotten. Yes, I can. I forget everything, and this weekend, since I've started thinking about Andy 24-7, it's even worse. In my PJs, I sidled down the hall and into Mom's bedroom, gritting my teeth, dreading what I have to say. Mom, I need a five-pound bag of flour for my flower baby for health class tomorrow. Mom's propped in bed in her nightgown, reading a biography of someone named Marie Curie. She's always reading biographies of outstanding people. She probably wishes I were a more outstanding person. She rubs her eyes, which look tired. She runs a pale hand through her dark hair, which is showing gray because she's trying to save money on hair appointments. Elizabeth, you're telling me I have to take you to the grocery store now? 
Well, you did have half a bag of flour in the pantry, but when I moved it, a moth blew out. Mom was never big on baking. Since she lost her job, she's basically allergic to the kitchen. So what's wrong with the occasional moth fluttering out of your flour baby? It adds interest. Mom, she leads her head back against the pillow and closes her eyes. Lizzie, I was at the grocery store this afternoon. Why didn't you tell me this before? I forgot. I wish I could talk to Mom about Andy. The guys who have been in school with me all these years never notice me at all. Only a new guy would notice me. What does that mean? All right, Lisa. Andy Master Smiling Disease. <laughs> where, where, I, I chuckled when I read that uh, uh, as I was reading the book. Where, where did that idea come from? You, uh, just I, kids? It, it just came in, into my head that, you know, that they kid, kids do use a lot of acronyms, and I think young people use a lot of acronyms these days. So I just thought it might be funny to, to make it an ac- acronym. And they can't hear it, but I hope they heard it in, in your inflection. But uh, you've got some uh, bold type here for the texting that's going on here. Right, right. Is that it, was th- my editors d- yeah. decided to format it that to, way. To emphasize the importance. They say don't text and drive. Is this an example of don't text while you're a teenager? Because <laughs> <laughs> you've got some pretty funny, uh, funny text moments here. Okay, so we got the characters. Um, she's got a friend. She's starting to think about boys and can't quite figure out why she's feeling the way she is and uh it's all about appearances she's got too many lols she's got to go back and delete those all right typical teenage stuff what i'd like you to do now uh, you mentioned earlier that this character had some forgetfulness uh, about her so let's start on page uh, 35 and uh, learn a little bit about the flower baby named ziggy okay On my way to last period, I stop at the water fountain by Ms. Robinson's classroom. I'm leaning to get a drink of water when Andy comes up and drapes his arm over my shoulders and pushes the on button. There's an ice-cold ribbon of water at my service. So, I have a question for you. His hair smells like baby shampoo. I realize I'm smelling his hair just like Harrison was smelling mine. This is it. Marissa was right. He's going to ask me. What am I going to say? About what? I play innocent, look up at him, and smile. Andy Masters' smiling disease, sort of like malaria or cholera or one of those other life-threatening things people get. So there's the freshman dance Friday night. Why don't you come and we can hang out? Wow, it says sounds really fun, I say stalling, but what does hang out mean? My thoughts race. I have to ask my parents. Can I let you know? Hey, what's up? I thought you were into me, Andy says, knitting his brows. My eyes lock onto his as he scans my face. I just have to ask, that's all. Okay, by Wednesday, Andy says. After that, this office is null and void and no coupons will be honored. Right now, if you could open me up, I swear you'd see a broken heart inside, cracked wide open. You seem pretty healthy to me. I poke his chest, starting that idiotic grin again and trying to escape down the hall. Beneath this cool attitude, there's an incredibly sensitive person, Andy says, following me. Okay, terrified of rejection, right. My heart does this breathless flutter. I tell it to stop, but it's not listening. He walks backward, does a little electric skip step. My older brother can take us. He's cool. Good to know, I say. Cool about what? Class, I add, pointing and pulling away, my idiotic grin getting wider. You, me, freshman dance, be there. He points at me, still walking backward. I nod, smiling, and tell my heart to please calm down. 
I stop in the doorway of my classroom, and I realize, oh no, I don't have Siggy. Andy, you made me lose my flower baby. I race by him back to Miss Cruz's classroom. Did I leave her there? I check the hallway in the bathroom. What did I do with her? I run back to the gym to check the showers, picturing Ziggy on her way to becoming a pancake. But nada. Where did I leave her? I sit on the bench beside the gym lockers, feeling slightly feverish, my heart aflutter, and sneak my phone out of my backpack. I look up heart palpitations on five-minute med consult. It says they're usually harmless, caused by stress or exercise. But let's be real. Who's to say I'm not having a heart attack? Mom is going to kill me for losing this flower baby. I absolutely hate it when she's right. Why am I so forgetful? Normally, we avoid looking at ourselves in the cheap full-length mirror beside the gym lockers because it makes us look wavy. I chance it. I search my face, staring into my own hazel eyes. I look prettier than my past self. I used to be kind of chubby, but now I'm skinnier. Not sure how that happened. Maybe cheerleading. Long brownish blonde hair, no glasses, just contacts. I look like a competent, together person. What is wrong with me? My whole family's prediction has come true. I've lost her. After school is over, I retrace my steps for my entire day without success. I wonder how many hours of my 15 years I've spent looking for something I have lost. Poor little Ziggy, where is she? If I've lost this flower baby, there is no way Mom and Dad are going to let me go to the dance with Andy on Friday night, even if I was sure I wanted to, which I'm not. My hands shake slightly as I shoulder my backpack and head out to meet Ryan, who amazingly is not late picking me up. I get in, and he waits for me to put on my seatbelt, then carefully shifts the gray Toyota into gear. This is our grandfather's old car, a 1998 Toyota Camry with 217,000 miles on it. Everyone at school makes fun of it. Ryan has named it the Millennium Falcon after Han Solo's spaceship. He has to be the most careful driver in the universe. Lines of cars bunch behind him on the road. It's so embarrassing. Once he forgot to stop at a stop sign and backed up so that he wouldn't be breaking the law. And, he says, because of its distracting nature, he won't turn on the radio. I can't even tell people that they'll laugh so hard. And, of course, he would never text. He glances at my face. What's wrong? I can't tell him. He stares at me. Come on, what? I lost Ziggy. Who's Ziggy? My flower baby. The words sting my mouth on the way out. Ryan starts laughing. I called it. What did I tell you? You owe me a million dollars. I am so mad at myself. Mom's going to kill me. Okay, Lisa, you're hitting on all the themes of adolescence, um, having to deal with a sibling who knows they're right and you're not. Yeah, uh, right. The, the, an older sibling, which yeah. I, I, I don't have an older brother, but I, I realized after I, I had finished the novel and gone through many um, um, revisions that that Ryan is actually her older brother is actually Jeff <laughs> my husband okay. and, and, and the drama too that comes out in this piece you've got yeah. a lot of drama over something no more than a, a bag of flour right, right. yeah <laughs> and then uh, she's consulting five-minute med console you do this a lot throughout the book right to add humor right because yes. she's always uh-huh. having a moment and, and she has to and she thinks out. she has every disease that's right there. right that's, because yes. she's feeling this and she's feeling that um, Okay, so we have this. This is really a mystery, too, right? I mean, you're trying. Yes, you're trying to figure out who's the one who's playing the pranks. It's a somebody in the school is uh, has hacked into the school system's computer system and is playing pranks and is causing the fire alarm to go off and they have to evacuate the school. So against the backdrop of this sort of budding romance, if that's there's a mystery there too. Is it really 
that or not. Yes. You've got the alarms going off and everybody having to go out to the field and the teachers on the hunt to figure out who it is and you've got your suspicions about who it might be and good old uh, who, who was who was the kid in uh, Leaving the Beaver that was always so nice to June Cleaver Eddie Haskell yeah, yeah Eddie Haskell yeah. maybe he's a little bit like Andy Masters you know <laughs> yeah. yeah he's always he's always gonna gonna do well okay so one of the things you do here too in addition to dealing with brother sister angle and the young love angle is you have a moment here in the book between father and daughter and the daughter is clashing with the mother now i don't know if that's typical of mother daughters at this time period but apparently the father is the one who can actually talk to the daughter not the mother during this time right in this book that's the case yes okay so let's turn to starting on page 90 and read that segment uh, where she she goes to dad for advice okay dad shuts his laptop sits at the counter and folds his hands over his stomach there's this guy that likes me i say oh there is is there dad smiles and how do you know that he messages me all the time sends me little jokes he sent me a funny video from youtube of two otters holding hands and penguins walking along together dad nods sagely Yep, he likes you. Do you like him? I think so, I guess. I think about him a lot, about whether he notices me or what he thinks about me. I start to twirl a chunk of my hair, so nervous about asking the question. The thing is, how did you know you were in love with Mom? Oh, Lizzie, we were much older. It's totally different. You're too young to be in love. You have a crush. Romeo and Juliet were about my age. Yes, and look how that worked out, Dad says dryly. I twirl my hair more tightly around my finger and watch as the tip of my finger turns red. Well, I know, but how did you and Mom meet? He smiles. I haven't thought about that in a long time. She and I met in a play in a community theater. You and Mom used to act? It's almost impossible to imagine. My super responsible dad and my tired, angry mom. In our spare time, yes. She was a librarian by day and an actress by night. I was a nonprofit administrator by day and an actor by night. We both had what you might call dual personalities. We were doing the importance of being earnest. I played Jack and she played Gwendolyn. I don't know the story. The two are in love, but they have obstacles. First, Gwendolyn's mother doesn't approve of Jack. Also, Gwendolyn swore years ago only to marry a man named Ernest, and that's what she thinks Jack's name is. He's lied to her about his name, so she'll marry him. That sounds ridiculous, Dad. Why would a person decide who to marry based on their name? I know, I realized that just when I was telling it. He laughs and shakes his head. But in the end, it turns out he was lost by his nanny in a handbag and was adopted and given the name of Jack by his adoptive parents. Guess what his real parents had named him? Uh, Ernest? Correct. Dad looks off into space. His tired face takes on a tender expression. Sorry, Dad, it sounds really stupid. Yes, it's a type of play called a farce, so some of the things that happen are ridiculous. But it gets you thinking, what are reasonable qualities for choosing another person? The other person doesn't have to be named Ernest, but that person definitely should have the quality of being Ernest. So while you were working on the play, you and Mom fell in love. Did you tell her that you loved her? It's funny, my lines in the play called for me to tell her I loved her, so I told her every night in the play, but not in real life. In real life, I hinted at it in many ways, by picking up an extra cup of coffee for her when I stopped on the way to the theater, by saving her a seat when we had cast meetings, by touching her arm when I talked with her, but in actual words, not for a long time. 
And then one night during the performance, when I said my line, she knew it was me speaking through the character. And at that point, there was not much she could have done or not, not have done that would have made me stop loving her. Dad stares out the kitchen window at darkening sky. I feel like he's far away. Shadows spread through the kitchen. He gets up and flips on the light switch, and the glare from the light seems to change the nature of our conversation. But Lizzie, he adds, you're only 15. 16 this summer. You have a long time before the time is right for you. All right, Lisa, did you have this kind of relationship with your own father? Could you talk to him when you were 14, 15, 16, 17 uh, about these kind of issues? A little bit. I could. I could yeah. talk to him pretty – I guess I could talk to him. I could. I was you, able you to talk a, to my mother really well, too. You though. didn't ask him dating advice like she did here, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe sometimes I did. Yeah. Sometimes I did. I, I, I had a good relationship with my dad. I like the way Lizzie fires back here when she tell when when he tells her that she's only fifteen. She says, "No, sixteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah every every month counts. Yeah, every month counts. Yeah. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to do our author to author segment. Uh, Lisa's going to read uh, a couple of more short stories. Uh, we're going to find a little bit more about her writing life. So, stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm at the Staff Picks wall at Park Road Books with Shauna. How you doing, Shauna? Doing well. How about you? Shauna, what's on your wall? Got a bunch. Uh, the Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins is a, a historical murder mystery following the trial of a young woman um, who may or may not have murdered her mm. masters. May or may not have. Yeah. Um, the Bride Test by Helen Huang, a romance and immigration story set in Vietnam and America over the course of one summer. Um, I've got Technically Started It by Lana Wood Johnson, a young adult novel told in text messages. Text messages. Yeah, yeah, the main character thinks she's texting one cousin when she's actually texting the other. They have Mm -hmm. the same name. Then I have Never Look Back by Allison Galen. It is a murder mystery involving a podcast about some murders in the 70s. A murder mystery involving a podcast? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's really fantastic. Um, The Weight of Our Sky by Hannah Alkoff is a historical fiction young adult novel about the race riots in Malaysia in the 60s with a main character who has OCD dealing with the aftermath of these riots. And then finally, I have The Plus One by Sarah Archer, a novel about a woman who didn't, couldn't find a date to her sister's wedding, so she built a robot date instead. She built her date. Yeah. Brilliant engineer. I think that takes a <laughs> bit more math than I can do. <laughs> she gets what she wants out of her date. She right? sure does. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. She built a, built a great selection here. Thank you. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, we're back with uh, author Lisa Williams-Klein, a young adult uh, novelist uh, and also short story writer. Lisa, this is a section of the show that I'm calling the author-to-author segment where authors from previous seasons have tossed me some questions that I can then toss at authors in this season. Uh, and these come from author Tracy Curtis, who appeared in season one of the podcast. Tracy's an award-winning author, speaker, and former syndicated humor columnist for the uh, McClatchy Company. She's written over 500 columns for The Observer, mostly humor. And she's got a humor me trilogy that's out. Here are a couple of her questions. How did you know that, you, that, that your genre was young adult? How did you, when did it come to you that you knew you'd found 
where you needed to be, your space, your writing space. I guess with my second book, I, I started writing about some of the experiences that I had when I was young. And I found that I was able to tap into the emotions of, of, that, of that time. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of, I became active in SCBWI, which is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. So I kind of found a tribe of people there. Mm-hmm. And I felt, felt very at home there. And there were other, so many other people who loved writing for young people. And um, and so I've sort of felt like I'd found my group when I was, mm-hmm. and I've become very active in the organization, and they've really helped me as far as finding an agent and finding publishers and finding places to send my work. It's a great organization, and so I just have felt very at home there, mm-hmm. and so I just kind of went from one piece of work to another. But I have always written also for adults at the same time. I've written short stories and essays. So a lot of the times I find that the material lends itself to either being adult or young adult. Mm-hmm. And um, so to, that's, to, how I, that's how I sort of decide. But to invest yourself in a novel, which is a, it's a big project, you know, right. if an author can't get excited about what they're writing, then the reader is certainly not going to be excited either when they read it right for you to still be excited what what continues to excite you about young adult fiction well i think that that life then is really um the young people there are a lot of emotions and a lot of hormones and a lot of firsts in that in that world and Mm. everything is exciting because you're experiencing in it for oftentimes the very first time Mm -hmm. and friendships and relationships and you're exploring all of the ramifications of the things that you do and it is a very exciting time of life it's a very formative time of life and I I can still I can still remember Mm -hmm. how it felt to be that age so I guess the key to it is really emotions okay Another question from Tracy Curtis. Are you a plotter or a pantser? Oh, I've heard that so many times. Um, So many writers talk about about that. And I I admire Tracy Curtis's writing, too. She's very, very funny. Um, So do you do it by the seat of the pants or do you plot it out? I usually start out just writing. And I just write. I let the story take me where it's going to take me. And then usually somewhere in, maybe about 80 pages in, I get stuck and so then I will go to a plot and I, I will start plotting and and um, and outlining and thinking more about how I want my story to end mm-hmm. and, so, that, and that feeds into her third question tell us a little bit about your writing process you, you've been a writer for many years you've got all these novels now um, you've been in the Charlotte Writers Club the North Carolina Writers Network you've been what, tell us a little bit about the Lisa Williams Klein writing process um, I I usually get an idea and I'll let it percolate for a little while or I'll just make a few notes about it and when I get a chance to write about it I, I will and I do try to write every day I think that's one of the important things about calling yourself a writer is to try to sit down at least for a couple of hours a day and write morning or night you are, are you a 
Well, it's funny. When I first started writing, I had small children, and I had to write at night. I had to write when they were taking their naps and at night after they went to bed. And so that was, that was my writing time when they were, when they were young. Um, and then as, as I had more free time, I would write when they were at school. And so I, I usually would write in the morning or the early afternoon. Now, I, my prefer, the time that I feel most creative, and this is unusual because most people don't feel this way. Most people, most writers I know say they like to write first thing in the morning. But I find that, that mid-afternoon is just a good time hmm. for me to write. Last question from Tracy. What's the hardest part for you about publishing a book? Is it the writing, the querying, the editing, the promoting? What is it? And why? I, I think the, the promoting is the hardest part for me. I really enjoy editing. I, I enjoy the writing and the editing very much. And I enjoy interacting with my editors and, and getting their feedback and kind of the back and forth of that. I find that very exciting. And I love getting, getting their input and then trying to shape it and, um, and into something even more polished. So I really enjoy that. I'm more of an introverted person, so doing public appearances and um, doing a lot of sales activities sometimes is hard for me. It's I find it I can find it draining. Even though I love I love, for example, I'm going to have a book signing in a few weeks, and I, people are telling me they want to come, and it warms my heart, and I'm very excited that people want to come. I'll still be really happy and relieved when it's when it's all over (laughs) (laughs) well you're not you're not alone in the uh, author world because in season two i asked uh, a set of either or questions and the very last one i asked was you know would you prefer marketing or manual labor right and most of the authors chose manual labor yes yes (laughs) if you if you have or giving giving a marketing job or you know cleaning the house or something like that i know i was all prepared with those answers i listened to the earlier ones i I was ready and then you changed it up i've tricked everybody who's appearing in season three they came prepared i don't want you to be overly prepared now yeah all right so this is a good segue i think when you're talking about writing for adults you've got a a couple of pieces here we're going to finish up with. They're short. Uh, these are your okay. essays that you write for adults. The first one um, is entitled In Sickness and in Health. And just to set that up a minute, you wrote this about your parents, right? Yes, and it was a few years ago. Um, okay. Uh, so anytime you're ready. Okay. In Sickness and in Health. Mom and I are talking on the phone one morning when she suddenly says, I have to hang up. Every time I turn my back, your father climbs on the roof. I picture her small, determined figure as she rushes out behind their lake house on this windy winter day. The lake is choppy and gunmetal gray. Jack, she'll shout, you're 78 years old. You're too old to be up there. I know how old I am. Dad shovels wet leaves from the gutter with his gloved hands. I'm hiring someone to do that. I'm going inside to call right now, Mom says. Don't you do that. Dad stands upright, bracing himself against the steep pitch of the roof. He wipes a renegade shot of white hair off his forehead. Mom glares up in his direction with her hands on her hips. It's ridiculous for an old man like you to be doing that. She purses her lips and marches across the yard. I am not old. Just last week, the doctor told me that because of all my swimming, I have the pulse of a much younger man. I'm going inside to make that phone call right now, Mom threatens. If you do that, I'll divorce you, Dad shouts. Mom hesitates, then continues across the yard. 
They have been married nearly 52 years. Once I saw a photo of them on their honeymoon in Quebec. Mom looked stunningly beautiful, idealistic and girlish. Dad looked cold and wet. He just dived into some 40 degree Canadian lake while showing off for Mom. When I was a teenager, Mom still sat in Dad's lap now and then, and he warmed her car every single morning before she went to work. Two springs ago, my brother and I sat with Dad in the waiting room to hear the results of Mom's cancer surgery. When her surgeon said he had gotten clean edges, Dad covered his face with his hands and wept. For hours afterward, his cheeks were shiny with tears. He slept night after night, hunched in a chair beside Mom's bed as she recovered. When she refused chemo, he cried every day for a month. While visiting last summer, I watched Dad place a vitamin, a calcium pill, and a beta-carotene tablet beside Mom's juice glass in the morning. They're too big, she says. They get stuck in my throat. I've had a wonderful life. If it's time for me to die, I'm ready. Dad looked at her as if to say, please don't leave me. Then he cut the pills in half. Later in the morning, Mom calls me back. He told me he would divorce me if I hired anyone, she says, but he's gotten down now anyway. He's been working on that tree in the backyard for almost an hour. Last year, when an ice storm hit, a huge tree fell in their backyard. Instead of hiring someone to remove it, Dad has cut a foot or so off of it every weekend. Now he's down to the thickest part of the trunk, and the going is slower, but soon he'll be finished. He's gone down to the dock now, Mom tells me. He's going swimming. It's 41 degrees, I say. I know, says Mom. Your dad sounded like a hearty soul. He, he was. <laughs> he, was he, did every, he wanted to do everything himself. The idea of hiring somebody to do anything was uh, anathema to him. Yes, he was a Mr. Mr. Fix-It. Everything in our house was held together with duct tape. <laughs> so when I read the story, it looked like your mother was ill and your father might survive her, but it, it was that's, the other way around. That's right? not the way it happened. My dad passed away three years ago, and my mother is still alive. She, and she's doing she's, well? She survived that, the cancer really well, and she's, um, she's 91 years old now. And it looks like they had a, uh, a really strong relationship. You they know? did. They yeah. had a wonderful marriage. They made marriage look easy. Yeah. Get off that roof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of that 40-degree water. Yeah. You might catch cold. Okay, so you've written another piece, um, and it involves your husband, Jeff. He's been sitting here patiently while we've yeah. been doing this <laughs> today, and uh, he, he, you've already brought him into one story now you're going to make fun of him in another story yeah i know uh, um, but he he loved it this story is called wardrobe malfunctions it's a right? lifetime of wardrobe malfunctions yes okay and let's set it up because you're going to read the end of the story um let's i want to set it up the first couple of wardrobe malfunctions you had uh, you and your husband who's recently retired but was a veterinarian you said he he always wore scrubs to work right right, right. yes and by that you were sort of saying he really didn't know how to dress when he wasn't at work right that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true we're yeah. just always wears jeans always just dresses very casually yeah and we're working up toward the end of the story which is what you're going to read the, the shorter part but you had a couple of malfunctions going in the first couple of outings right what happened yeah well we um we were invited to a bar mitzvah and he didn't have a suit so we got him a suit and when we had the t suit tailored we forgot to check the the legs of the suit and it turned out that one leg was much much shorter than the other one and but we were already there out we had already gone out of town and so there was no way to change it so he 
he just had to lean to the left a lot. So, because <laughs> yeah. and then the second wardrobe malfunction was we went to a wedding and he had rented a tux and shoes and one of the soles of the shoes fell off like a clown when, and this was 10 minutes before the wedding started and he had to run down to the lobby of the hotel and uh, there were, happened to be a pair of shoes in the lost and found that fit him. So, uh, so those were, those were two dress up events that we had gone to and I was, I had gotten very anxious about going to dress up events after having those two <laughs> malfunctions happen. So you were going to prepare well for this uh, this wedding of your yes your, so your friend's daughter yes. and and that's where you're going to pick up in the story here. Okay, okay, great. A few years passed and the time came for the wedding of my dear friend's daughter. After two wardrobe malfunctions, my anxiety about our clothing had become rather intense. Well in advance, we bought a suit and had it altered. Jeff tried on the pants to make sure they fit and weren't uneven. I bought him a new dress shirt and tie. We bought him dress shoes. I bought a new dress, jewelry, and stockings that matched. The night before the wedding, we drove to the Virginia home of mutual friends. After dinner, Jeff came out of the guest room, crooking his finger at me with a concerned look. Once inside, he opened his suit jacket hanging in the closet. No pants. We exchanged looks of horror. After trying on the pants, he must have hung them on another hanger instead of with the jacket, and I hadn't checked when I packed it. This just goes to show I am not a guy who is meant to dress up, Jeff said. The next morning, while I was at the bridesmaid's luncheon, Danny took Jeff to a department store, the blue pinstripe jacket in tow. Danny had to take a phone call, though, and when he came back, found Jeff at the checkout counter with a pair of white khakis. No, 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 they have to match the jacket. Danny helped Jeff find blue pinstriped slacks, and eventually all was well. And the wedding was so lovely, and the band was so good that we danced all night. We danced so much that halfway through the reception, I went to the ladies' room because one of my shoes felt funny. Then, as pairs of Jimmy Choo's paraded by my stall, the soles of both of my shoes completely disintegrated. In strange wax-like chunks, they fell away into my hand. The one thing I hadn't bought new, had Jeff's wardrobe malfunction virus been passed on to me? I took a deep breath. Everyone was looking at the bride and groom, not at me. I took the shoes off and on my way back out to the dance floor, slid them under the edge of a long white tablecloth and danced barefoot into the wee hours of the night. In the future, maybe our daughters will get married. Should we hire a valet, opt for barefoot and khakis on the beach? Maybe we should just encourage them to elope. All right, well, I notice that Jess sitting here comfortably in his blue jeans today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. right. This is an interesting story, a humorous story. I had a situation once happen to me when I was going to argue in the North Carolina Court of Appeals, and when I got up to argue, I, I looked down and noticed that my my pants did not match my suit jacket. Right. <laughs> and then when I got back in the car, I noticed that I had one black sock and one blue sock, at, at which point in time, I vowed never to buy more than one color sock. You know, there you go. I yeah. always had black socks in the drawer after that. You know, this story but. is very funny because every time people read it or I tell them about it, everybody has a story. Everybody right. comes comes up with a story like yours. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just goes to show we can't dress ourselves, right? <laughs> <laughs> or can't always do that. Well, Lisa, this is this has been great. Tell the listeners where they can find your latest book. Oh, well, they can, they can um, get it from the Blue Crow Publishing website. They can get it really from, from anywhere. They can get it from Amazon, and they can get it from, uh, you know, I always love to plug the, 
um, independent bookstores, and yeah. they can order it from an independent bookstore. Um, Park Road Books, and, and yeah, the, Main yeah, Street absolutely. Books, and, Main Street Books yeah. and Park Road Books. They can yeah. they can get them from there. I, Go there I first. Took, I know yeah, Amazon's yes. convenient, but check out those independent bookstores because yes. without them, the, the writers wouldn't have a place. Absolutely, yeah. and I and I definitely I know that Park Road and Main Street both have them. So good. Do you have a website? Yes, I do. It's lisawilliamskline.com. I know you're in the throes, Lisa, of, of marketing that uh, ugly word, uh, marketing the book now, but uh, are you already thinking about the next book? Yes, I am. I am. I, I have about 80 pages written, and so ah. I'm at the point in time where I have to stop and do some plotting. <laughs> okay. So you, you, you're using the pantser, and now you're going to drop back. Yes, I use the pantser, and now I'm switching over to the plotter. All right. Well, look, it's been great having you on the show, and... Uh, uh, th- thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This has just been really fun. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we meet Martha Kiris, author of The Sun Is Up, a book that acknowledges white privilege and explores hospitality theology against the backdrop of Charlotte's racial history. Greg Gerald, author of Riff of Love, says that in a church culture that loves its willful blindness, This memoir comes from a powerful white lady who has seen the light and now has an important song to sing. If you liked our show, please tell your friends and please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcast or wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereaderpodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that, we will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.